<clears throat> so in our study, um, we encountered the verse in James where it tells us to uh, let patience have her perfect work, that we might be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. And I don't know if what your experience has been, but uh, it almost always seems like after I get finished with a teaching that I remember something that I wanted to do in the process of teaching. <laughs> and last week, I wanted to read Romans chapter 5, the first several verses of Romans chapter 5, and I didn't get to that point. So I'm going to read them to begin our class this morning. I think this gives us a, maybe a little bit of insight into what James had in mind when he was talking about let patience continue its good work. Uh, and a little bit about what that final product might be, okay? So a little bit of context, and then we'll get to where we're going with this. But uh, Romans chapter 5, I'm just going to read the first few several verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that... But we also glory in tribulations or testings, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance or whatever word you have, endurance or patience or whatever, and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So I think it just gives us a little bit, a different, a little fuller picture of the work of patience and, and uh, some of the final aspects of the work other word, patience, or the work of patience in our lives. So that's uh, Romans chapter 5. Again, the first several verses of Romans chapter 5. So I'm going to take your prayer request uh, or updates on our prayer list. And John Stone, if you would, wouldn't mind leading us in prayer, please, sir. John? Okay, pray for... She's a Christian and really needs prayer, especially for Kevin, but for encouragement and strength for her at her father's funeral as well. Okay, pray for Kevin's co John's co-workers and their special needs at this time. Ron? Okay, pray for Ron's sister, Jerry, with four-stage st four lung cancer. Anyone else? Judy? Okay. Continue to pray for Randy and Judy's cousin, uh, nephew, excuse me. I wrote, I wrote down nephew. Nephew. Anyone else? Again, we're thankful for the recovery Mike's had. I know he has some other surgery coming up. And Beverly is, I don't know, we didn't actually talk. I don't know if she's going to try both hours today or, or just one. Last week, two weeks ago she came to Sunday school, and then last week she came to church. So today's, she's back there, so we'll see how long she makes it, I guess. Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. Allison. 
Okay. Stephen Allison's neighbor, Ray, uh, with hospice and probably in need of spiritual needs. Okay. And along with that, I would um, obviously continue to pray for Larry. And as I've said, oftentimes we need to pray for the caregivers, maybe even more than we pray for the people that are ill. And also for Cindy and Scott. Cindy Delginger and her husband Scott. Scott has been put under hospice care also. So, John? One last. For the people of New York City that they turn around in the midst of everything being, that's being thrown at them right now. Okay. Pray for the. Serious repentance. Pray for the citizens of New York City. And obviously continue to pray for Penny and their, their mom's needs. Sorry, Ann. Okay. So Nancy Dykeman in Oklahoma, I assume, lost her home on Friday to a fire. She lost her husband about a year ago, and now, and then I had par- partial damage from tornado somewhere in that time period, and now complete loss to, to a fire. Okay, I always share these prayer requests and it makes me thankful for the blessings God's given me. So, John, please. Amen. Okay, James chapter 1, I'm going to read uh, beginning with verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. 
For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower fails, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Um, these verses here, uh, 9 through 11, uh, sort of, if you're reading down through from the top, we've already studied through the first eight verses, but if you read down from the top and read down through and then read past in the next several verses, it's like, why are these verses in this context? What do they have to do with the context? Because we've been talking about trials. We've been talking about uh, those type of things in our response to trials and what we're supposed to do. And then James brings up this subject of the rich versus the poor. Now, this isn't the only time that James deals with the economic status of the readers that he's writing to. He deals with that again in chapter 2, chapter 4, verse 13, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. But uh, something has triggered some response in James's mind. And, And keep in mind that, you know, these, the authors of the scripture are not uh, subject to um, English composition rules or regulations. They don't always have to, f- to follow some very carefully prescribed uh, how-to. Uh, they can just sometimes just address subjects as, as uh, their heart is burdened by, by God and obviously led by the Holy Spirit. But just a couple passages I'm going to have read for you that tell us a little bit about uh, attitudes toward the rich and so forth at that particular time. And Charles, if you'd read Luke chapter 6, Verses Okay, so it t- talks about a little bit about the attitude toward the rich and, and uh, a warning to them not to just rest or be comfortable in what they have today. Amos, Matthew 23, verse 12, please. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay. So this isn't a, um, this isn't a you know, like an attack on the rich people. That's not, I don't think it's the intention. The intention is to talk, sort of point out to everybody a sense of contentedness in this particular passage that we're looking at in James James here. Um, one of the commentators indicated that we need to, we, every one of us need to see ourselves as God sees us, not as the world sees us and not, and not accept the status situation the way the world would see us, but it's to see how God sees us. And so we need to do that along the way. I, I made a note to myself, and, and uh, I don't know if that's making any sense to you, but I wrote down, not the size of your bank account, but the size of your ego. It's, you know, so it's not, somebody may have a very, very large bank account. I use, just use that expression, okay? But if, they, but they're, if they're humble about it, that's what God wants. God doesn't want us to have a, a rich a healthy bank account and then get arrogant about it. So he wants us to stay, stay humble with what we have. And so we need to 
We need to do that. We need to be very careful that we do that along the way. And as I said, we need to see, everyone see ourselves as a, as in the same way God looks at us. Notice in the text it says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Um, it clearly identifies the lowly brother, a lowly person as a brother. It does not do that for the rich person. So somewhere along the way, the question has been raised that, you know, maybe, well, maybe the, he's not talking to a believer when he talks about the rich person. I, I don't see any reason or validity to that question. Um, James doesn't make a distinction and say that this is an unbeliever. So I think it's, in his mind, he just has moved from one, one person in the kingdom of God and another person in the kingdom of God, one that's a poor person in the kingdom of God and the other that's a rich person in the kingdom of God. I think that God has both things in mind as we go along here. What about some of the rich men out of the New Testament? What are some of the rich people that you would identify out of the, scripture, out of the New Testament? And I'm thinking, of course, I'm thinking mostly of believers, but Beverly? Nicodemus? Okay. John? Zacchaeus? Who else? What if you move to the book of Acts? Who, who early in the book of Acts is a, obviously a wealthy man? Barnabas, okay, okay, uh, excuse me, Ananias, okay, sold, sold everything and then lied about what they did with it, yeah, okay, I wrote down Matthew, Zacchaeus, both of them being tax collectors, which would probably both put them in the upper tiers of their day, Nicodemus, which Beverly mentioned, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, and I don't really have a real reason to, to say this, but I think... Lazarus and his sisters would fit in this category, just the way that Lazarus' home is represented and feast, you know, people coming there for, to eat and so forth. The hospitality provided for them seems to be uh, something along that way. Um, so, and then, of course, we all know, are familiar with the wise man that wasn't so, I mean, the rich man that wasn't so wise and the story of, of the wise man, and La, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, excuse me, rich man and Lazarus. And um, so... So there's some things in the scripture, but obviously riches are not condemned. It's just simply a, a matter of having the right attitude, the right approach, understanding where all those resources and finances came from. And then I, I'm always reminded of the uh, story in the scripture when Christ talks about the, uh, the rich man and, and uh, not being able to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter into to heaven. Again, it doesn't mean that rich people cannot end up there. It just simply means if you're trusting in your riches, if you're trying to get in with your riches as a part of your pack, as a part of your identity, that that's not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to get you all the way into that. John? Well, and you also look at the um, parable of the rich farmer who really got, and the thing, thing he, un, he tried to underscore is he was trying to live the American dream. Okay. Basically, I'm, I'm going to retire and I'll live a long time. And God said, that's it. Okay. He, he did not remember the priest and the Levite, the poor, the widow. I mean, he was addressing a Hebrew audience primarily. Okay. And they knew this. Okay. So, just as a thought, that God is not influenced by our wealth, our appearance, or our success. And also, of course, the scripture talks about that we need to be storing things up in heaven where neither moth nor rust do corrupt, and so that uh, those things in heaven are there. 
So James says that the lowly brothers should, should glory in his exaltation. Um, if you'll look there in verse 9 with me, please. I'm just interested to see what other words you might have. Let the lowly brother, what? I have the word glory. What other words do you, do you have? Boast. Boast. Okay. Anybody else? Beverly? Take pride. Take pride. Okay. Anyone else that has a different word? Okay. Boasting and taking pride both probably immediately bring to our minds negative connotations, negative reaction. We don't like boastful people, and we don't like people that are proud. Okay, so those two words both sort of like push back at us. Maybe not. Maybe they don't push back at you. They push back at me. Um, And so those words sort of have that, end up giving us that negative feeling or negative connotation. But this word that's here, James uses it also in chapter 4, verse 16. But Paul uses this word 36 times in his epistles. Uh, We actually saw it, uh, didn't mention it when we read in Romans chapter 5, but it actually appears in Romans chapter 5, in those verses that I read in chapter 5. And most of the time that Paul uses this word, it is always used in a positive way, a positive context, okay? So even though we sort of step back at the word boast or at the word take pride or even at the word glory, it is a word used in Scripture for a positive confidence, okay? Uh, So we always talk about the difference between being uh, confident and being cocky, okay? We always sort of talk about that, but basically I guess in the athletic world we talk about the difference between a you know, somebody that has confidence in their abilities and somebody that's cocky in their abilities. So James is not saying here to be cocky, but he is saying to be confident, okay? So in this context also, of course, we need to re- remember that what we refer, what most, probably all of us fall into is someplace in the middle income bracket, whatever that is, any, any longer. Uh, but we probably fall somewhere into that middle income bracket. At this time in history, there was very little in the way of middle-income bracket. Most of the people were either rich or they were poor. And so that's, of course, why James is only addressing those two areas right in this particular case. And so the, lo- the lowly brother, even though may have, they may have a struggle having enough food for their family or having a proper place to live for their family, they're still to have confidence. They're still to have Again, this positive response to, to their lifestyle, to where God has placed them. So that is the idea of the, I have the word glory. Again, we have the word boast. We have the word take pride. It's just having confidence that, that you're okay, you'll be okay, God will take care of you. Just be confident in that. But the rich in his humiliation, now they're not expecting humiliation. This isn't a doomsday thing. This isn't a promise that things are going to get bad for them or anything like that. It's just simply a reminder to them that you really only have what God's given you. You don't have anything else. It's okay. And then, it, this, then one of those, the second of those um, very, very well done illustrations that James uses, he talks about the normal process here of things growing. Okay. And in this, again, this cultural context, because the rains would come, crops would, would spring up, crops would grow. 
They would flourish. They would do really, really well. And then we'd get to a season where the hot sun came in, or maybe even better, probably understood as a hot wind, would come in and cause those things that were luxurious on one, you know, like lux, what word I want to, I'm looking at for, anyway, you know what I mean, green, lush, that's the word I was trying to think I, think I was coming up with. They, they turned to, you know, all dried out, all nothing. That is the same way that somebody that thinks they've accumulated a lot of riches that eventually those riches will be left behind and they will not do anyone any good. So it's, it's a warning, again, it's picked up uh, later in chapter 2. If you want to jot down, uh, or maybe you've already noticed, noted that the, these verses that James is referring to here in the, in the idea of the flower, the sun, and so forth are quoted from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. So... Why are, again, why are these verses in this context? I can tell you that I probably would, I'm pretty sure I would not have come up with this response on my own or on my own study. Um, but one of the things that was suggested, which I've, after I've read the suggestion, I felt like it was probably the answer, the solution, that our economic status can easily become one of our largest trials. And so James is dealing with what everybody deals with. Everybody deals with an economic status of some kind. Okay? So how would being poor become a trial? How would being poor become a trial? John? Okay. Allison? Uncertainty of your future? Okay. Where are you going to put that trust and confidence? Yeah. Okay. Someone else? It just, yeah, John. Okay. It's a temptation to reach out and do something that we shouldn't do in order to better our circumstances, right? They're just, um, there's just a lot of different ways that this can go. For somebody that's tr really, truly poor, you know, do they, do they turn to alternatives? I mean, you have people that are homeless, and one of the reasons they're homeless is they're on drugs. So they've, re you know, either the drugs put them there or they've reached out to drugs as a reaction to the situation they're in. And that, that by no means is meant to be um, I'm not trying to put them down or belittle them. I'm just saying that there's it. So, the, so then what about the, uh, how does, how does uh, riches, what does riches, how does riches create a trial or a test for us? Hey, Tammy? Take your focus away from God and take your focuses on something material or, or whatever. John, back there. Okay. Ah, he's the Lord. 
or let that become four and heal and sustain the other. Oh, so both sides of the picture are very aptly captured in that section. Thank you, John, for finishing that up and looking that up. Another way that the rich can be, riches can become a trial instead of just a blessing. Anyone else? Allison? Okay. Just a distraction, right? Okay. John? Well, you can be prone to miscalculate in many ways. You know, not just with materials, but also in withholding and looking down and sneering at where you may have been moments ago. Okay. Built that well. An attitude of superiority. Charles? Certainly, certainly self-made person and pulled myself up by my bootstraps, to use the old ex expression or whatever. Okay, so, so I think that, as I said, so typically for me, I'm just going to take a little bit of a side step here. Typically for me, when I'm preparing for a, to teach for a lesson, I just, I focus all my attention on the text. I read the text, I study the text, I think, ask myself questions about the text, I try to come up with answers to the text. I have the extra opportunity because of my background. I have the extra opportunity also to study it, the New especially the New Testament in the original language, which tends to give you a lot of insight. Sometimes that insight is difficult to interpret and bring over and to, to explain it to somebody, but it helps me when I'm doing that. So that's typically what I do. So I study and I, do, I just keep doing that. I make myself notes. I go back through those notes, add to them, throw them away start over again, whatever. And so then, typically for me, what I normally do is then right before I write up what I call my teaching notes, which is on Friday typically, I will then take my commentaries and start looking at them. So my commentaries are my last thing I usually look at. They're the last thing that I, that I pay attention to, okay? There's nothing wrong with a different approach, okay? It's just the way that I approach my study. So in this particular case, when I was preparing to study for these verses 9 through 11, it was like, wow, I don't, just, I don't really know what to do with these verses. And so I went to the commentary sort of early in my study, and it was like, oh, and that was when I got the suggestion that maybe these are just James recognizing that these are trials for everyone, either richness, either being rich or poor, it can become a trial, or, or as we're going to see in the context here, uh, a temptation. So... So I, I'm thankful for commentaries. I'm thankful for what they do. Uh, oftentimes they don't do anything for you because of the hard topics that we can't understand. No one else can understand either. So they don't really have any good answers for us. So moving on to verse 12, which is a more familiar verse probably to us and more uh, sort of fits what we've been doing. Uh, Blessed is a man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed. Now, we've talked about this. Pastor Joe talks about this, the idea of this whole idea of being blessed. Matthew chapter 5 probably maybe is the significant passage that, that addresses the idea of being blessed with the, the, this beati the Beatitudes. Um, I, I'm not going to try to give you a lot of different things about it. I just, it's just being content in God's provisions. It's just knowing that whatever God's doing for me right now is what I need. 
It's just sort of that having that contented response to life, okay? It does also, you know, it usually brings with it uh, that positive response to life, that happiness of life, but it's just that sense, sense of contentment that's there. So this man that endures temptation, he is blessed. He is, in my simple word or simple definition here, is a content person that's content in the provisions of God. He is uh, enduring these here um, temptations. Um, I think in this particular verse, it would be better if we still were carrying along the word trials. Um, but uh, probably most, many of you probably have the, the additional word there. And then it talks about approval. Again, this is the word we just talked about some of the last week. It's, this is the word that's, that's uh, what something's been tested to see if it's genuine see if it's real, see if it's valuable. And so our, our testing, one of the things our testing does is test our sincerity of our faith, test the value of our faith, test the strength of our faith. That person is going to receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, when I speak of anything after 9.58 a.m. on this Sunday morning, I have to speak in tenses, in sense of contingencies. When I speak of the future, I have to speak of, well, I'm, not, you know, I'm hoping that we'll get through church. I'm hoping that I'll get home safely this afternoon. I'm hoping that I'll be able to have a profitable week. But all that for me is in a sense of contingencies. I don't know that that's going to happen. It's just that way. So I'm saying this because you may hear somebody or you may read something sometime and somebody will somebody will say that the, that verb in Greek is future. So when we speak of future, we're speaking of contingencies. When the Greek mind, don't, don't ask me to go back there because I didn't live back there, but when they used the future tense, and again, it was a different spelling of the word, it was a different, it, that word sounded differently when they spoke it. When they used it, they were actually anticipating reality. Okay? They were expecting it to happen. There was, for them, not a sense of contingency. They do have a form of a word that does show that indefinite idea. But the future tense for the Greek mind was not an indefinite idea. It was something that was going to happen. Now, how they come up with that, I don't know. Don't ask me to go back and, uh, or whatever. Uh, but that's, that is what happened. So I just am saying that to you in case you ever hear somebody speak of that or you happen to be reading about, you know, in a commentary or something and you see that, it is not that mind. And this here... This word that they will receive the crown of life, that is a, it is in the future tense because they're going to receive the crown of life in the future, but it is a definite promise. It is something that, that uh, James says will happen to the people who endure testing and are approved. They're going to receive this crown of life, which is promised to those who love him. And so um, these people will have biblical characteristics. What, is, what did uh, Christ say to his disciples? How were people going to recognize that they loved him? Excuse me? Love for each other. And also to, in that context, they had senses of, to obey their, that he, they would obey his commands. But yeah, that's exactly right. So this is, a, this is a real promise verse here. It's sort of a bridge verse. Sort of takes us from the first 11 verses of the of the chapter and takes us into the next few verses of the chapter. So it's just sort of, it's like, maybe it's sort of like a tunnel, sort of goes through, cuts right through the mountain and gets us from one side to the other side. 
uh, along the way. And so, and then, and then James just comes out with this decorative, emphatic statement. Okay, no explanations, no justification, just simply lays it out there. Okay, and he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So I suggested to you that in verse 9, we sort of had James sort of switches things up a little bit, stays on topic, but switches things up a little bit by introducing this economic status of of his readers. Here in verse 13, he takes another slight twist and angle, but still, still hanging to this idea of testing, and, this, and then talks about, he, what I think he's doing is he's anticipating the response from the reader. Not all of them, but some of them, or an occasional reader, he's, a, he's, he's thinking somebody out there is going to say, well, I was tested, I went through a trial, and now I'm in sin, or I have sinned because of that trial, and now it's God's fault. Okay? So James sort of anticipates this happening on the part of the reader, that they're going to say, aha, now I can blame God for my troubles. Now I can blame God for where I've ended up. Okay? And James says, in, in no uncertain terms, don't go there, don't say that. Okay? Don't say that. And it just, as, you know, just as clearly as some, some of you may have told your child, children sometime in life, just stop. Don't say anything more. You're going to get in trouble. James says, just stop. Don't say anything more. It's time to stop. Okay? So James brings this, introduces this into the matter. Now, again, it is a, sw- it is a little bit of a twist. It is a little bit of a change of directions here. But it is, uh, I think, um, verified or validated here in this, in this matter. And in the middle of the verse, we see sort of maybe the key to the, the, to the section. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Okay? So, uh, and, and so that isn't, what, that isn't what God's going to do. Um, So all of our trials, I think we would recognize that all of our, first of all, we need to sort of broaden our definition of sin, okay? Um, sometimes we end up with sin being only murder and adultery and things that are sort of criminal, the things that are against the criminal system, the justice system, and we forget how much sin involves our attitudes toward life, how much sin re- includes our response to who God is in our lives and so forth. So sin is, again, the basic sense of sin is to miss the mark, okay, to miss the mark. So there's one target to hit. If we're not hitting that target, then we're missing the mark. And so we need to, again, take this concept of sin a little further than we might normally come we, we, we like to make sin things that we don't do, but everybody else does. Right? Be honest about it, okay? You know, I've never murdered anybody. You know, I've never done this. I've never done that. But what about my attitude? 
You know, what about my response to a little bit of hardship? You know, what about those things? What about my failure to, uh, according to, the, according to uh, verse 12, to love God like I ought to love God? Okay? And so there is this, always this matter of potential, of potential. So all of our trials, no matter what or when, could end up with us failing, but that is our responsibility. We don't try to put that back on God. We don't try to put that back on the circumstances. Well, if God hadn't put me in that, so those circumstances, I wouldn't have sinned, okay? <clears throat> no, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way, okay? We have to accept responsibility for what we're involved in, for what we're doing. In 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, it tells us that no one is tempted above that which they are able to be tempted, but with the temptation, God will also make a way to escape, and so there's always, we're brought to that point, of, can we use the word concept of a crossroads, we brought to that point, and it's not ju- there's not just the way into sin, there is also a way past sin, without involving ourselves in sin. And so James puts that very clearly out there, doesn't do it. I know this brings up, if we were going to di- digress and we're not because of we would actually get nowhere further than anybody else has over the years, but I know it brings us into that, well, you know, if God does everything, God's in charge of everything, then God must somehow be responsible for sin. God in his holiness, in ways that exceed our understanding, has guarded himself and protected himself from the fact that even though he is the God over what is now a very evil world, it does not change who God is. It does not change his character. It does not change anything about him. It does not change his will. It is simply us being responsible for our sinful responses to what's going on around us. So God can't tempt evil. He doesn't tempt anyone that way. Or he doesn't tempt us to sin. Okay? He does test us. He does try us. But, so again, that, that I'm saying that these verses change, change the context, a little bit of the word. Now the word is the same. The same original word. It just changes right even, even in the middle of a larger context, the immediate context changes the significance of the word. And here, this word is saying when, when these people were tempted to the point where it led them to sin, that wasn't from God. The trial was intended to bring them closer to God, never further from God. Never further from God. And so James goes on but says, but each one is tempted or, again, tested and then uh, headed towards sin when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Um, anybody have a different word than the expression drawn away? Excuse me? Lured? Huh? Lured away? Okay. Tempted? Okay, the, the, the picture behind this is the, the picture of fish being caught in a net, okay, of being dragged away, uh, drawn away or dragged away as being fish caught in a net. And then the word enticed, which is what I, I, I have it appearing at the end of that verse for me, that word is the word to be baited, to be baited. Um, so you are baited either through deception or simply, again, like if people hunting over bait, they're taking advantage of the animal's natural desires 
to eat in order to take the prey, in order to kill the animal. So it's taking advantage of the animal in that particular direction or that particular way. Anybody have thoughts as we're moving through here along the way? John? Well, the fact is, when it says drawn away, essentially it seems so appealing to something within us. Well, that's the idea of the dro- enticed. No yeah, that's the idea of the enticed. Okay. So just some thoughts about overcoming this invitation to sin. We're, we're in the trial. There is in the trial an invitation to sin. To understand the source of desire, Scripture tells us it comes from within us. It's not coming from outside of us. To accept the responsibility that we're responsible for how we respond to that testing or trial. To, rem- to remind ourselves that the purpose of this, these circumstances, this trial, is to mature us and not fail us. So we're in the midst of a trial and we're, we, we, we must never lose track of our responsibility to think, be thinking under all circumstances, okay? We have to engage our brain as well as other parts of us when we're responding to life, okay? So we, we, we're in this situation and we, we know that what we're thinking about doing is sinful, would be displeasing to God. We, we know that in our minds that we're, what we're thinking about doing would be wrong. We have to use that knowledge and we have to use that mental capacity then to lead us then to stay away from that because that's, we know that's not going to help us in our relationship with God. That's not going to help us grow or mature. So in accepting responsibility and then saying, well, what is it, if I go that direction, what is, where is that direction taking me? Is that direction taking me closer to God or further away from God? Okay? It's like going, you know, driving. You can make a turn that's going to take you, take you, you can still maybe end up where you want to go, but you're going the long way around. And so we just have to always be aware that we are responsible and that it comes upon us. Because God never wills for us to sin. It is never God's desire or design for us to sin. That is not what God does for us. What about Joseph's response to trials, Joseph of the Old Testament? What about his responses to trials? We don't really know how he felt about that initial trip into Egypt. We don't know whether there was some type of buffer zone where he had to sort of go through an attitude check and go like, wow, I don't like this at all. I'm not really happy with what's happening. Um, when he was, you know, paraded around in the slave market and purchased, you know, we don't really know what, how that worked, okay? Uh, we see him from time to time always doing the right thing and, and never recorded when he did the wrong thing. But we don't, we only are sort of open to whatever conjecture we want to add to the other. But the ultimate end was when those brothers in chapter 50 came to him and after Jacob's death and begged for leniency, 
mercy, forgiveness, grace, whatever. And Joseph said, you know, don't even worry about it. Stop worrying about it. Uh, you intended for evil. God intended for good. And that's why we're here. I par- paraphrased all that, obviously. But that's why we're here. We're here because God had a purpose in bringing us to this point. Uh, it, 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 w- it wasn't your intention for it to come out good. And I probably, you know, and probably if we could have sat down and talked to him, he probably would have told you there were a few moments in the, along the way that he didn't like it either. But he, his re- final response is what it needs to be. And then finally, in this um, section here, verse 15, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to, d- to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, b- brings forth death. Simple process of conception, birth, and death that goes along here. And um, I, um, when I was reading this section, uh, I don't remember the last time I remember I was, ever I was singing it or whatever, but I was reminded of the course that some of us probably sang somewhere along the way, yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. It wasn't the temptation that was the sin, it was the yielding that was sin. And we look, we want, we plan to get, we take action to get, and we will reap the consequences, whether they be positive or negative. And so we need to understand our responsibility not to blame God and accept our responsibility in the midst of our response to the various trials brings, God brings in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this section. Thank you for this wisdom that James shares with us and parts to us. Help us, as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4, to be content whether it's in our upper middle class or our our lower middle class or even if some of us are really poor and we're unable unable to recognize that, help us to learn a state of contentness in those things. Help us to understand that you are the one that clothes the lilies of the field and so you are the one that takes care of us. Help us to constantly be growing Help us to come to the point where we can anticipate receiving the crown of life because we have persevered through trials and we've been tested for approval and then we are, have arrived at the point where we've been promised the crown of life. In Jesus' name, amen.